How's everybody tonight? Are you all living the dream? You know, you can always say that. I never tell anybody what kind of dream it is. So tonight, we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 6. We're going to try to look at 6 and 7 tonight. We'll see if we're able to accomplish that. It was borderline too big, which usually means you guys are going to be late. So remember as we start, we want to keep uh, our eyes focused on what's going on in Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3. 1, 2, and 3 are all the call. Remember, the call of the prophet was seeing God. Have you stood in the council of Yahweh? That's what, uh, what the word of God declared of the prophet. So he has his meeting with Yahweh. Yahweh appears to, to him. He receives a word from the Lord. You remember Ezekiel is a little different than some other prophets in that he doesn't speak unless God gave him something to say. He stays in his house, but if God gives him something to say, he comes out. Now we know... For what's 390 and 40 days, Ezekiel's going to be coming out. He's going to be doing a performance uh, with the clay model of Jerusalem. Uh, He's going to portray God first lying on his side for 390 days, then lying on the other side for 40. Um, He's going to do this whole presentation every day. 390 days, he's going to act out. There's nine different synacts in chapters 4 and 5. So those nine different synacts he's going to participate in. Through that time, and it'll roughly be until we get to, I think, around chapter 11, uh, he's going to be sharing these things that we're also going to be reading from, uh, not just uh, chapter 4 and 5, but 6 and 7, and and on and on, different things that the Lord is declaring. And one of the primary messages that the Lord is delivering from Ezekiel to the exiles is about Jerusalem. Because remember, the exiles think they're the cast-offs. They think they're the ones that are forsaken, they're the ones being punished, and the reality is they're the ones through whom God's going to bring forth the remnant that will rebuild the nation of Israel. And so Ezekiel is going to be prophesying against Jerusalem, but they're in Babylon. We talked about this last time. Nobody had Facebook back then. So whatever Ezekiel's saying in Babylon is not getting to Jerusalem, right? So he's sharing it to the exiles. This is a word about Jerusalem for the exiles to encourage them. Each one, God's not only going to talk about his judgment. We got 24 chapters that are going to primarily deal with God's judgment against Jerusalem and battling with this idea that the children of Israel had, which is Jerusalem is God's favorite city and he'll never do anything to destroy it. It's kind of interesting philosophy. You can find similar philosophy in the United States sometimes. But the idea that, hey, we have God's special blessing, God's name is here, God would never destroy this city, which is not at all in keeping with the word. That's not what the Bible said. That's just what man says. And so these first 24 chapters are going to focus in on God's judgment <coughs> Excuse me, of Jerusalem. So as we look, 
We're going to talk a little bit tonight about the, the intent behind the judgment. So we're talking about judgment in Jerusalem still. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, and The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. And say, you mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, to the hills, to the ravines and the valleys. Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you, and I will destroy your high places. The first part of, and I would say there's probably two primary issues that God has against the nation of Israel. The first one he mentions here is high places. The high places were a problem uh, for the entire history of the children of Israel, from judges all the way to the exile. The high places were a problem. In fact, <clears throat> there's a couple of scriptures in Jeremiah 3, 6. It says, Now the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, the faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there she played the whore. He's talking about the example, the illustration of an unfaithful wife sleeping around with other lovers. That's how God describes the nation that would go to the high places to worship other gods. And that was something that had been a part of Israel from the time of the judges. So that, that goes before the kings. This is a long-standing issue. In Jeremiah 3.13, the Lord says, Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. These are all illustrations talking about looking toward the high places. Now, <clears throat> not only do we have high places, before there was a temple, the high place was where everyone would go to worship. At the establishment of the temple under Solomon, the high places were all supposed to come down. High place was just a, was a, a place where people went to worship. The problem was many of the high places were to the false gods of the surrounding areas that the Jews would continue uh, to worship at rather than abolishing when they came into the land. So this is a long-standing struggle. In fact, if we go back to Solomon, Solomon built high places. In fact, in 1 Kings eleven seven, it says, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh. Chemosh was the god of Moab. And he built a high place for Molech. <clears throat> Molech was the god of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. Uh, do you know what else is on the mountain east of Jerusalem? The temple. So on the same place where the temple was built, Solomon built two high places to worship two other gods. So this is before the split of the kingdom. And then as God was looking at all the kings, one of the things that the Lord would say about the kings is, well, this king was, was a good king, not quite as good as David, or maybe not quite as good as Josiah, or not as good as Hezekiah, but he would always refer to what did they do about the high places. Because God's command was to bring them down, tear down the high places, get rid of that. 
Get rid of all the areas of false worship so there's one place for people to worship. Uh, 1 Kings 15, 14. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was true to the Lord. So Asa, a good king, but he did not take down the high places. 2243. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Speaking of the next king, he walked in the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet, the high places were not taken away. And the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Second Kings, speaking of uh, Jehoash. Jehoash said to the priests, All the money of the holy things that is brought to the house of the Lord, the money for which every man is assessed, the money from the assessment of persons, the money that a man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take each from his donor and let them repair the house wherever any needs is discovered. So Jehoash... <coughs> excuse me, decent king who, who brings up the temple was in disrepair and he's going to take care of the temple. But look what it says uh, two chapters later. But the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings in the high places. Second Kings fifteen four. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed. Second Kings fifteen thirty five. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. <clears throat> so throughout scripture, you have this call from God to bring down the high places. You have judges who did it, right? You guys have heard of the story of Gideon. One of the things Gideon did in the very beginning of his ministry was to tear down the high places. The false uh, altars of Baal. So this was something that had been a part of the history. Now here the Lord is saying... Look, you know, we've had all this history, hundreds and hundreds of years, but you've never brought down the high places. Now, here's how God looked at it. That is like living next door to the person your wife is cheating on you with. Over and over. Only it's everybody on the block. It's every green tree. It's every high hill. Everywhere around Jerusalem, which was supposed to be a place that was set apart wholly unto the Lord, but it wasn't. It was a place of unfaithfulness. In fact, we're going to see really the peak of that when we get to Ezekiel chapter 16, which is a, uh, a pretty intense chapter when we get there. So one of the reasons why this judgment is coming is for God to deal with the high places, to bring them down. The other thing I want you to understand about the high places, which kind of coincides a little bit, I think, with the reality of where we are uh, today, and that is that the high places were uh, state-sponsored uh, sites. It was the monarchy that God was calling on. It was the government that God was saying, hey, you need to straighten this out. God was speaking to the government. He was holding, the, when God brings this judgment against Jerusalem, he's not talking about the individuals. Now, individuals are a part of the state, right? But the state was always the king. Manasseh, the, probably the worst king that they ever had, Manasseh, whose heart was to build and expand the high places and 
provide everything that the people want, all types of opportunity for them to worship whatever God they wanted to worship. And so this was state-sponsored apostasy. And that's why God was against the high places. The individual people, they have idols in their homes for sure. And the message of the prophets would have changed to have the people turn their hearts back to God. But while the message of the prophets is calling against idolatry, it was to the kings. It was to those running the nation who were leading the nation in opposition to God. And it was government-supported opposition. And so the prophets, where did the prophets go? We just finished studying Jeremiah. Who was Jeremiah talking to? The king. In fact, the king, when he's asked, hey, don't you have a prophet who can come out and tell us? No, I don't have a prophet that will say anything good. I don't have a prophet of Yahweh. He won't say anything good. Because the prophets of Yahweh were coming against the monarchy, saying, hey, take down the high places. Idolatry. This nation's heart is in idolatry because you, the leadership, have sponsored this idolatry that they find themselves a part of. Look at verse 4. Your altars shall become desolate. Your incense altars will be broken. And I will cast down your slain before your idols. I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols. I will scatter your bones around your altars. Now remember I told you this is not new. You go all the way back to Leviticus. So we're all the way back at the establishment of the law. We're predating the nation doesn't even exist. You have a group of people in the desert. <clears throat> God has laid out his word to these people. In Leviticus 26 verse 30. I just want you to hear how close it sounds to Ezekiel 6. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols and my soul will abhor you. All the way back in Leviticus, the Lord was saying, look, if you won't be faithful to me, this honestly should be something we understand. There is not a culture on earth that honors unfaithfulness. There's not one. There's not a culture on earth that says, yeah, you know what I really want for a good friend is someone who will betray me. Or what I really want in a, in a spouse is someone who won't be faithful to me. Nobody anywhere on earth says that. So it should not be shocking for us that this is indication of uh, the image of God in our lives. Because God abhors unfaithfulness. It means he hates it. What is it that God is looking for from us? He is looking for us to be loyal to him, to have a loyal love. You're all right, brother. I don't care what everybody says. Hopefully that'll help. Oh. He's looking for that. He's looking for this faithfulness. And so when we look, we, we can understand, right, that God is saying, hey, I want faithful, loyal love because that's what you want too, right? Well, it's not shocking then. It's not shocking that this is something that God wants. He talked about it in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy 12. 
All right, we're all the way back in the first five books of the of the of the Bible in the in the Torah. <clears throat> we're looking at the establishment of the law for the people. Moses, who didn't come into the land, is speaking in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 12, here's what he says: These are the statutes, the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land of the Lord, the God of your fathers. He has given you to possess all the days that you will live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. What were they supposed to tear down? All the high places. What they do in, instead? They used the high places. You shall destroy the places where the nations whom you dispossess Serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. Tear down their altars, dash into pieces their pillars, burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. So when we look at God's judgment against Jerusalem, we need to understand that part of that judgment was for something that never happened. So you're not talking about, you know, God told them once. And they didn't do it, or twice, or for a hundred years, or two hundred, or three hundred. It was something that God spoke to them at the beginning of the establishment of the nations, and something that eventually came due date. Not tearing down the high places, which directly led to the second problem, which is idolatry. Right? Leaving the high places led directly to, uh, to idolatry. So <clears throat> in verse 6, he says, Wherever you dwell, the cities will be waste, the high places ruined, so that your altars will be waste and ruined. Your idols broken and destroyed, your incense altars cut down, and your works wiped out. So he's talking about all their idolatry. And what you need to understand is at first it was, hey, tear down all the idols that you have, all the idols that you have on the high places. But Solomon built them where? On the Temple Mount. And then other kings put them in the temple. So if you can, if you can get your mind around the image for God of unfaithfulness and the, the, uh, the unabashed, unshamed unfaithfulness that was being established before God for hundreds of years you may begin to understand two of the emotions that God's going to talk about in this chapter. One, God's going to say, you broke me, which is a strange statement. And the second is going to be fury. And those are two emotions we would probably be able to understand in, among human relationships, right? Uh, unfaithful relationships. He says in verse 7, The slain shall fall in your midst so that you will know I am the Lord. So he's judging two things, high places, idolatry, and he's going to do what he said all the way back in Leviticus. I'm going to put your dead bodies on your idols because those are the places where the people were going for help, not to the Lord. They were not faithful to him and the point behind it all that you know i am the lord 
How will they know that? Because they've been standing at the idol praying. And the idol could not deliver. And this is the same thing that the Lord is going to discuss always when he discusses these things. Now here's a phrase though. Every time we see God's judgment, and biblically this judgment that Ezekiel's talking about, the judgment against Jerusalem, I want you to hear what it's called. The day of the Lord. Have you ever heard that before? Now there are, are multiple times in Scripture that are discussed as the day of the Lord, but they all have one thing in common. They are days of judgment. There's another day of the Lord coming, at least one, right? We, we read about it. We're going to look at some of those Scriptures tonight. But we read about it. But listen, every time you have judgment, you have remnant. God says, I will never make a full end. One of the things we discussed when we talked about, you know, one of, one of the things I see in the exile is God's, a similar story. You see it in Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews discusses it. When the children of Israel come to Kadesh Barnea, they have no faith. They won't enter the land. The Lord says, okay, I'll wait till the next generation. And then the next generation comes and they come to Kiddish Barnea and now they go into the land, right? <clears throat> but they don't conquer it like they're supposed to. They don't tear down the altars. They don't abolish idolatry. So there comes a point where God says, I'm going to exile this and destroys the nation and he exiles a remnant, a generation into slavery and he says, I'm going to try again with the next generation. That's why things like Deuteronomy chapter 6 are so important because what was supposed to be done in the familial unit, in the family unit, what was supposed to be done was their understanding of who God is and what God had shown them and what God had taught them in the past was to be passed from father to son, right? From, from parent to child. That there was supposed to be this outpouring of the lessons learned to the next generation so that when the next generation faced their challenges, they'd be ready, right? Does everybody feel like today our, the next generation is ready? So if the next generation's not ready, whose failure is that on? That's right. That's me. We own that. So the challenge here, he's saying, look, I'm going to have a remnant which is a call immediately from God. I have a remnant, so this, from this remnant I'm going to regrow, right? There will be another generation who's going to come back into the land of Israel and build a new temple, right? We know this from history, right? So he says, yet I will leave some of you alive, and when you have, when you have among the nations some who escape the sword, and when you have scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. Here's what they're supposed to remember. How I have been broken. This is God speaking. How I have been broken over their whoring heart. So everybody understands the illustration, right? It's something that we should be able to uh, have empathy toward. Right, Because, like I said, there's, there's not a culture under heaven that honors unfaithfulness. 
And so understanding the brokenness, and God is speaking of himself <coughs> as been broken over unfaithfulness in the heart of his people. That's an impactful statement for me. Because the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God. Here's another way of saying that. He who had never known brokenness would become broken for me so that I could become whole. Isaiah 53 says it is by his stripes we are healed. And that word for healed is made whole. We are, we are made whole in his suffering. Those are incredible statements to understand. There's, there's really two emotional statements that God's going to make. One, this one right here. How I have been broken. What is it that they're supposed to remember? What is it the remnant are supposed to remember about God when they find themselves and they wake up where they are and they go, okay, we've got to prepare another generation. We've got to get people ready for, for the next you know, the next opportunity that we have to, to stand for the Lord. He says that you will remember how I have been broken over their whoring heart <clears throat> that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. So God's saying their, their hearts left me, they don't love me. What's the, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with well, let me ask you this. If you're getting married, what do you want to hear from your spouse? I love you a little. I'll love you Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. No? Do you want to hear from your spouse, I love you with all my heart? So, the Bible says in Gen Gen Genesis, the Bible says in Genesis, we're created in the image of God. So we have within us a fingerprint, right, of, of God upon us. And <clears throat> that fingerprint is incommunicable ideals. And, I, and we look at it, we say, why is it that we, that we want this? Because that's a fingerprint of God in our life. It's a fingerprint of God that we honor faithfulness. It's that fingerprint that he lays out for us. We want to see it. We want to... We want to understand it. And so here's what he's laying out for us. That their heart has turned for me. We want to love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, strength. And their eyes are not for me. Their eyes are somewhere else. So Paul, this is what Paul gives us advice in our walk with the Lord. He says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but one thing I do. Forgetting the things which lie behind, I press on toward the upward call of Christ Jesus, my Lord. He puts his eyes on the prize. But here he says, your eyes are on the idols. Your eyes are not on me. Your eyes are on which eyes are like where your desire is. Where's your desire? Well, your desire is for these idols. And they will be loathsome <clears throat> in their own sight for the evils they have committed for all their abominations. So there will be a day when the people recognize their brokenness and their unfaithfulness before God. And they shall know that I am the Lord. And I, I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. So this, this is the, the um, destruction that God brings upon 
Jerusalem. This destruction that he brings over their <coughs> unfaithfulness. Now he goes on in verse 11. And he talks about what is the reach. What is the reach of this wrath that God has? He's told us about this ray of hope. The scattering of the remnant. Them recognizing he's the Lord. Their eyes being opened to their brokenness. It, 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 it forespeaks an attitude of repentance and turning back toward the Lord. He says in verse 11 now, the reach of his wrath. Thus says the Lord God, clap your hands, stamp your foot and say, alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, they shall fall by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Does that remind anybody of anything? In Revelation chapter 6, there is something called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Do you remember? The first uh, represents the, the Antichrist, right? One coming, promising uh, peace, has a bow in his hand and a crown. He comes to conquer and to conquer. It's a rider <clears throat> on the white horse. But I was more concerned with the next three. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another. He was given the sword. What did the Lord say he was going to bring? The sword. When he opened the third seal, a third living creature said, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hat. And I heard what seemed to be... <clears throat> a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, don't harm the oil and the wine. What is it? What is that third horse? That third horse is famine. We'll see it in a moment. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. Okay, here's their authority. To kill with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence. That don't sound familiar? The day of the Lord is a judgment from God. And this, these three judgments are always a part of it. The sword, famine, pestilence. The sword, famine, pestilence. Pestilence. He's laying out for us in Ezekiel 6. <clears throat> they will fall by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. It's like talking about, uh, just another way of talking about three of the horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Now these horsemen came, I'm saying, in, in the exile. This was part of God's judgment in the exile. Similarly, these will come again. Anytime there is a day of the Lord, God's judgment poured out. And so he says, they fall by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. He who is afar off will die of pestilence. He who is near by the, by the sword and he who is left will die by famine. Thus I will spend, this is the second emotion God talks about in this section. Thus I will spend my fury upon them. The fury of the Lord, just another 
description, Hebrew description of anger, wrath, fury. It's all the same word. It's all basically the word fire, heat. So it's a fiery wrath, uh, this picture of, <clears throat> of God's abhorrence of the evil that he sees as uh, unfaithfulness, disloyalty, something that we also recognize and abhor in, in our own culture. Now, what is the effect of this wrath? Look at verse 13, and you will know, I am the Lord. When their slain lie among their idols, uh, around their altars, <coughs> on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, under every green tree, under every leafy oak, wherever they offer pleasing aroma to their idols, I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate and waste. In all their dwelling places from the wilderness to Riblah, then they will know I am the Lord. The old ultimate intent of the judgment, then they will know I am the Lord. Then they will know I am the Lord. You have the outpouring of God's grace upon the nation for hundreds of years. And then you have the day of the Lord. Judgment Day. And this is what he's describing. Now when he says from the wilderness to Riblah, it's just another way of saying from top to bottom. From the north to the south. The whole span of the nation. Everything is, this is not just judgment on Jerusalem. I want you to see this is on the entirety of the land. The entirety of the land is what's coming under judgment. And now in chapter 7 he moves to sounding the alarm. Now sound the alarm, remember in chapter 3, Ezekiel was charged, if I tell you to sound the alarm, you got to sound the alarm, otherwise people won't be warned, right? So he lays it out, the word of the Lord came to me, you, son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, an end, the end has come. This is where we're getting this idea, right? The, this is a judgment. This is a, there's no turning from this. When God says to Jeremiah, stop praying for the people, this is not changing. This is happening. This is the end. The, the end has come upon the four corners of the land in totality, the totality of the land, uh, the promised land. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you <coughs> according to your ways. And I will punish you for all your abomination. So there's a couple things we want to recognize. One of those being, this response is from the Lord. This is the Lord's response. There is payday someday. Remember when David talks about, maybe it's not David, it is the other guy. What's the other guy's name? Hmm. Brain is such a terrible thing to waste. Anyway, well, he writes in the Psalms, it'll come to me. He writes in the Psalms, it talks about, I, I almost lost heart when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Do you know what the next part of the Psalm is? And I entered into the house of the Lord and I saw his end. The, the idea the Psalmist lays out is he couldn't understand the prosperity of the wicked. Why did they get away with it? How come their judgment doesn't come? Because if the day of the Lord comes now, 
it's the end. <clears throat> so it's God's grace. It's his, it's his long suffering. It's his loving kindness that tarries. The worst king in the history of Israel was Manasseh. Horrific king. Built a bunch of high places. He killed his own infant children and buried them in the foundation of his palace so that his palace would be blessed. God said of Manasseh, because of this king, he's so wicked, this is why the exile's coming. But he reigned longer than any other king in Israel. I think his reign is something like 65 years. And people would say, why would God let the most wicked king rule for the longest period of time? Do you know the answer? Because at the end of Manasseh's life, he repents. And aren't you thankful that the long-suffering of God waited for you? To repent. And so, you have this, this the end coming, you have this, this being discussed, but the idea is this is coming from God, and he is going to punish. There will be a day. So the psalmist would write, Nope, still don't have it. Asaph, there you go. Thanks, babe. You're all right. <coughs> so, so uh, but the psalmist writes, I almost lost my way because of the prosperity of the wicked. God didn't judge them right now. But then I went into the house of the Lord and I understood his end. There will be judgment. There is a judgment that comes. Um. He goes on in verse 4, And my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for your ways, while your abominations are in your midst, and you will know I am the Lord. Now you're going to hear that phrase over and over again in another book that is apocalyptic in nature. In the book of Revelation, you're going to hear that phrase over and over. Then they will know I am the Lord. Then they will know I am the Lord. You're going to hear it with another phrase. The other phrase is this, and men would not repent. And men would not repent. Still, men would not repent. So you have this, in fact, you even have the people crying out to the rocks, <clears throat> save us from the wrath of the Lamb, which indicates the people know exactly what's going on. They're crying out, save us from the wrath of God. But they will not repent. They will not turn. The Lord even talks through the prophets to the nations. Why won't you turn to me and live? Why do, you want to, why do you want to perish? You could turn to me and live. He says, now then you will know I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, disaster after disaster. Behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come. <coughs> it has awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come. The day is near. Day of tumult. Not of joyful shouting on the mountain. So the Lord is talking about this outpouring of God's anger and wrath upon the land. And as that day is coming, he says disaster upon disaster. Because while this disaster was coming, the first wave comes. Daniel goes into exile and the Lord gives them an opportunity. Hey, just submit and live. And instead they rebel. And so the second wave comes, and Ezekiel goes into captivity. 
And the Lord says through the prophets, submit and live. Why should you die? And they continue to rebel. And the third wave comes and utter destruction happens. Disaster upon disaster, the end is come. When Ezekiel's given this prophecy, the first two waves have already hit. So now Ezekiel's prophesying about the third wave. The third wave, the final wave. The end has come. It has awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come upon you. Now the Lord in verse 8 talks about holding back his pity. Look, he says, now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you. Spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. And I will punish you for all your abominations and my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. So the point that we need to understand, sometimes a lot of people struggle when they look into the Old Testament because they hear judgment, 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 judgment. Don't ignore the hundreds of years of grace prior to that judgment. The hundreds of years of God sending prophets, the hundreds of years of God sending priests, the hundreds of years of God calling to the people saying, don't do this, don't do this. Telling them before they ever went into the land, here's my expectation. And then for hundreds of years having them disobey, 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 disobey. Until God says, okay, it's the day of the Lord. And the nation of Israel will cease to exist for 70 years. There will be none. There will be nobody in the land but robbers. <clears throat> he says, now, as I, I will pour out, I will punish you for your abominations. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways. This is not unjust judgment. Do you understand? This is just judgment. This is God giving the wages that were earned. He says, I'm, I'm just going to do what, I'm just going to give you what you've earned. Most of the time, we all want to call out on God for mercy, but when we deal with other people, we want, we want God to get them. Go get them. They're bad. Not me. I, I want mercy. And I, as much as possible, want to have grace for others too, because I want mercy. The Lord here says that the day of the Lord, that day of judgment, there's no pity. I will punish according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. So you're going to be there. The people are there participating in the very things. It would be like um, a husband catching his wife in the act of cheating on him. In fact, if you want to understand that, that's almost exactly what Ezekiel 16 is about. And so... He's saying, I, I, all your abominations are in your midst, and you will know, I am the Lord. You will know, I am Yahweh. <clears throat> I am the Lord who strikes. He's the Lord who judges. And so he, he is fulfilling that purpose. He, now he talks about what's going to happen with the people the strength is going to be utterly gone and deliverance is impossible. There's no deliverance from the day of the Lord. He says, behold, the day, behold, it comes. Your doom has come. The rod has blossomed. Pride has budded. 
<coughs> violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth. Neither uh, shall there be preeminence among them. So the first reason deliverance is impossible, verses 10 and 11, is their moral corruption. Violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. They are morally corrupt. So God says, none of them shall remain. Moral corruption. No deliverance. The strength of the people is gone. <clears throat> Next, in verse 12, the time has come. The day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is upon all their multitude. For the seller will not return to what he has sold while they live, for the vision concerns all their multitude. It shall not turn back, and because of his iniquity, none can maintain his life. The second thing he talks about, the, the deliverance being impossible in the day of the Lord, one, because of their moral corruption. The second thing is an economic collapse. The seller is not happy. The buyer is not happy. When you look in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, Babylon the Great has fallen and has fallen. Who's mourning? All the buyers and sellers. Because <coughs> they've lost their means of wealth. And so this, this judgment, the day of the Lord, it comes as a result of their moral corruption. It brings with it an economic collapse from which they will not return. Then in verse 14, he goes on, they have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but none goes to battle, for my wrath is upon all their multitude. The sword is without, on the outside, pestilence and famine are within. He who is in the field dies by the sword, and him who is in the city, famine and pestilence devour the third thing that happens on the day of the lord why this deliverance is impossible is because their confidence in military strength cannot deliver they sound the trumpet and who came nobody what was the trumpet for you know reveille is not just something to to get people up in the morning once upon a time reveille was the sound for which you gathered you heard this sound you knew what to do you heard them playing this note. You understood it's everybody know what to do when you hear charge. Yeah, even those of us who've only ever heard it at a football game. What's everybody say when they're done playing it? Charge. Yeah, because we understand the tone. What happens when you blow the trumpet? That's how you, you didn't have walkie talkies in those days, right? The guy in, on the mountain didn't get on a walkie talkie and call the guys with arrows. Say, I need all my archers to shoot. No, how'd they do it? Trumpet. Especially in Israel, shofars were everywhere. So they made a particular sound, and everybody understood the particular sound, what it meant. That's why when you, when you talk about uh, the gifts in the church, in 1 Corinthians, it talks about the idea of, uh, of what if the trumpet player doesn't make a right noise? What, nobody knows what to do. The idea, you, you blow the trumpet and... The gathering happens, but they're saying, here, you're calling together your military, but nobody comes. Why does God say? Because my wrath is upon all their multitude. There's no military that's going to get you out of the day of the Lord. There's no economic surplus that's going to get you out of the day of the Lord. We're going to see that in a minute. Moral corruption got you in. Moral corruption can't get you out. There's 
no delivery through your moral corruption. There's no delivery through economy. There's no delivery through <clears throat> or deliverance through military. Then in verse 16, and if any survivor escapes, they will be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all of them moaning, each one over his iniquity. Every hand is feeble and all knees turn to water. There are a few times where the Bible just says things nicer. Probably don't have to tell you what that means, right? So you're going to see that occasionally, especially in Old Testament prophets. They are always talking about people who are not potty trained. When your knees turn to water, it's because people have wet their pants. That's what's being described. And so he's saying their hands are feeble. Their knees have turned to water. They put on sackcloth. The horror over, overcomes them. Shame is on their faces. Baldness on their head. It's a recognition of their state. It's the first sign of recognition of their state. That's something that's absent from the entire book of Revelation. In the entire book of Revelation, you'll never get a time where people are repenting. Where people are saying, oh my gosh, listen to how we got here. Oh, it's, it's there. It's the first inklings of understanding. Oh my, this is, this is trouble we brought on our own head. If only we had read the Bible. Right back there, all the way back in the very beginning, it said these things were important to God and yet we did none of them. That God wants our loyalty, but we were not loyal to God. That God wants our love, but we didn't love God. But we professed it. We said we were different than all the other nations because of how much we loved God and how much, how much we, were, we honored him. But in reality, our hearts were far from him. In Amos 8.10, the Lord said, I will turn your feasts into mourning and your songs to lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. To have to go all the way to that point to bring repentance, sorrow. And what are going to be the effects of that day of the Lord? Verse 19, they, they throw their silver in the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. So here are these guys, like doves on the mountaintops, <clears throat> beginning to recognize their state. And what, what's the first thing they know? All this stuff in my pockets is not helping me at all. I cannot eat silver. You could have a heap of silver, but if nobody wants your silver, what's it worth? You could have a heap of gold, but if nobody wants your gold, what's it worth? If you find yourself in a system where where all someone's looking for is food and all you have is gold and silver, what do you got to trade with? Nothing. It's worthless. They said they were not able to deliver them from the day of the wrath of the Lord. They're throwing all their money away. What good was all this? How much time did they spend to build all that? And they're throwing it in the street. Listen, they cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with silver and gold. Do you ever ask yourself what the dollar is based on? <laughs> I have no idea. What, I can tell you it ain't on gold. 
maybe oil, maybe some backroom deal. I don't know. What do you think happens the day after somebody says it, it ain't backed by nothing? We think all them dollars are worth. Well, that never happened. You ever heard of Germany? The division of East and West, you know, overnight, the mark lost all its value. It was not even worth using for wallpaper. In the day of wrath, the Lord says, their silver and gold did them no good. It would not fill their stomachs. Listen, for it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. Silver, the pursuit of silver and gold was the stumbling block of their iniquity. But now they're, now they're recognizing, just a little bit late, would have been better sooner. Then he talks in verse 20, his beautiful ornament they used for pride. They made their abominable images and detestable things out of it. So, so he's talking about the temple, his beautiful ornament, the ornament that, that God gave for his presence in the city but they use it for their abominable images they filled it with idols and detestable things therefore i will make it an unclean thing and i will give it into the hands of the foreigners for prey and the wicked of the earth for spoil and they will profane it and i will turn my face from them and they will profane my treasured place robbers will enter and profane it they tear the whole temple down solomon's temple and all its glory utterly and completely destroyed. Deuteronomy chapter four talks about that. If you don't hold fast, if you don't follow me, if you follow me, I'm with you all the way to the end. You, you don't do these things, you rebel. When you've been in the land too long and you've grown corrupt and you start to worship idols, the Lord said he's gonna bring it all down. Deuteronomy four. In verse 23 and 24, he says, Now forge a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, the city full of violence. I will bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses. I will put an end to the pride of the strong, and the holy place is profane. <coughs> the utter ruin of the city. Spoken of in Deuteronomy 28, 49 and 57. Again, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. When anguish comes, they will seek peace, but there will be none. No peace unless you know Christ. No peace. Anguish is all they have, no peace. Disaster upon disaster, rumor follows rumor. They seek a vision from a prophet. <coughs> Excuse me. While the law perishes from the priest and counsel from the elders. The king mourns, the prince is wrapped in despair, the hands of the people of the land are paralyzed in terror. According to their way, I will do to them, and according to their judgments, I will judge him, and they shall know I am the Lord. And when he talks about this, disaster upon disaster, if you just think back to Jeremiah, how many times the king would bring Jeremiah in. Jeremiah, just tell me what God wants me to do. And Jeremiah would say, oh, it's easy. The Lord just wants you to stop. Stop rebelling against Babylon. Babylon gets to rule over you for 70 years. Accept that reality. This is your punishment for the wickedness that you've done. And God will bring the, the remnant back into the land 
in 70 years you'll, you'll be set free. Ah, that can't be what God wants. All the way till destruction came. Disaster upon disaster, the total ruin. Remember, he's laying this out to a people who think we're the slaves, God hates us. Because if he loved us, we'd still be in Jerusalem. And Ezekiel says, no, that's not true. If you were in Jerusalem, this is what would be happening to you. You're the seed of the next generation. You're the remnant. And that's going to be the backdrop of the message of Ezekiel to these people for uh, the next 15 chapters or so. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time we could study through Ezekiel. Lord, I pray that our our eyes would be open to the truth, the reality of God that you're pouring out, Lord, your righteous wrath, your righteous judgment upon a world that had rejected you. The picture is so beautifully painted in Ezekiel 16, Lord. I just pray anybody who's struggling with it, just go read it. Just go look at the words God uses as he describes how he felt. Like a man who wandered through a field and he came across a child, a baby, who had been thrown out like garbage in the middle of a field. And so God scooped up that baby and cared for that baby and gave that baby everything it ever needed. Only to be rejected over and over and over and over. God, I pray that we can understand the call in Scripture for faithful, <clears throat> loyal love. Our eyes put on the prize to recognize the beauty that we have in you, for you do care for us. And there will be a day, just like the Bible talks about days of judgment. We see a day of judgment, but never miss the reality that Jesus, in the midst of a day of judgment, at the end of the book of Revelation, he says, see, I make all things new. Right after he talks about wiping away every tear, every sorrow, every pain, the promise of the renewal the redemption. <clears throat> and we think about it, Lord, I think that, that the word is true. We can't even begin to fathom. We can't even begin to understand the beauty of the day of the total redemption that God offers to men. May we not be those who reject it and then shake a fist over the things we suffer, but rather we would recognize there is a promise God has made a way. May we hold fast to him and allow him to carry us through. May we learn the lesson of those who go before us and not forsake our salvation, not neglect the blood of Jesus Christ, not drift into despair and disbelief. But we, may we be of those of whom better things are spoken. Men and women of endurance, keeping their eyes on the prize, walking like those in the hall of faith, looking 
to our great God and Savior for that great day when he makes all things new. God, may you be glorified in this place as we praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray.